The following audio is from Acts Church in Leander, Texas. More information about Acts is available at actschurchleander.com. So we are in the second week of our series, Who is This Man? Uh, This is a book by John Orberg of the same title, um, roughly based on this book. Uh, My name is Andrew Walker. I am the fifth planter for Acts Church. We'll be planting. My, my wife, Audrey, is here. Our three kids, uh, Lydia, uh, August, and Lucas are here um, out there. So uh, we'll be planting the fifth installment of Acts Church south of Austin uh, by next year sometime. Um, if you want to look at a, uh, the first message of this series to kind of catch up or look at any uh, message later in the series, um, and God bless you if you want to revisit this message. Uh, it's all on the Leander app uh, under, this, under this series. Who is this man? So that's what we'll be looking at. And the whole point um, is to see Jesus with fresh eyes. Okay, that's the whole point of the series is to see who Jesus is, to clarify his identity and respond appropriately. Because as we saw, uh, or as gay priest last time, this is the most influential man in all of history. Right? And he didn't become that way without being a little bit divisive. Uh, he himself said, I did not come to preach peace, but I came with a sword. That he would divide families. Some will be with him, some against him. And I find it interesting that even 2,000 years later, we are asking the question, who is this man? Now, believers, we know who he is. We know he is the Son of God. We know he is our Lord. But for the world, uh, this is a very confusing uh, question. Now, when you look at his teachings and take them to their fullest extent, don't just kind of cherry pick uh, certain passages, but look at his teachings as a whole, you realize just how polarizing this man was, just how divisive his teachings were. Deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me. The fact that he said, this is the way to salvation, this is the way to live life in a God-pleasing way, not a way, but this is the way, that's polarizing. That's intense. And it leaves you with only two choices. So uh, kind of to to revisit something that C.S. Lewis said, there's only two choices. There's nothing in between. You can either reject this man and just say, crucify that fool crucify him because that is dangerous. Say my way and my way only, that's dangerous. You can do that or you can worship him and say, yeah, I will die to myself. He's invited me to that. I will worship him. I will live to him for the sake of others. There is um, no real in between there. I mean, dude just told you to die to follow him to death, and that in him is act, that death is actually life, that doesn't sound like a great teacher to me. To me, that sounds freaking schizo. That sounds scary, right? Unless he's actually right. That, that somehow he would be able to rewrite natural law. To be able to do that, he would have to be there when natural law was written in the first place, which means he would have to be there from the foundations of the world to be able to make a claim like that, that in him, he has the power to do that. That is intense. And it doesn't really leave room to just say, yeah, he was a good man. He was a great teacher. He was a good philosopher and and all that, but I'm not gonna gonna worship him. We're either on board or we're off. There is no numbingly gray in Jesus. 
the most polarizing figure in history. And to become that, he's going to have to be just a little bit intense. So if you're here this morning saying, man, it is the weekend. This is too intense for a weekend, especially a Sunday morning. If you're here nudging somebody saying, why did you bring me here? Uh, like, <laughs> this, is, this is way too intense. I'm not going to... Re- I'm not going to just receive an ultimatum on a Sunday morning. And by the way, I thought you said this guy had gauges. What, where am I right now? What, what, are, you, what are you doing to me? Um, you, the reason that I'm saying this, the reason that I'm bringing intensity into this discussion is because we need it. I mean, frankly, we, we need more intensity, especially in the church. And Jesus brings it in a big way in this reading. We just need to understand what he's saying. Truly I say to you, he says to the disciples, they're, they're, coming to, uh, they're arguing amongst themselves. Who is the greatest? Who is the greatest? And, and they bring it to Jesus to kind of be the arbitrator. And, and they say, well, who's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And here's how he responds. Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never, by the way, this is emphatic in the Greek, never, ever, not a chance, no way, will you enter the kingdom of heaven unless you turn and become like children. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. You need to understand what he's saying. This is not a speech about how the children are our future or anything like that. Jesus is not highlighting her age. He's not highlighting how cute she is. He's not highlighting how innocent she is because she's not, right? No human being born is, is innocent. That's why we baptize babies because everybody needs Jesus from cradle to grave. Everybody needs Jesus. Uh, no, he's highlighting her humility. It has nothing to do with an exterior thing. He's highlighting her humility. Because if you think about where she is in society, she is acknowledged as a child. She is acknowledged, but she's not respected. She doesn't have any power. She doesn't have any means. She doesn't have any influence. I mean, her parents probably love her, but let's face it, they're not going to trust her with her own iPhone, right? So she, she is in a different state entirely. Now, to a large degree, um, we have moved a different direction in our society, to, to say the, the least, but the, uh, the point remains the same. Every day, her circumstances, her limitations, her station in life is reminding her of one thing. I am in need. I am dependent. And that's what Christ highlights. He doesn't love her for what she is or what she can do. He loves her for what she's not. He loves her for what she can't do. She's not self-sufficient. She doesn't have the ability to make her own way. She is at the bottom of society. Now, the disciples, on the other hand, are clamoring to the top of this pyramid. 
okay? They're clamoring up to the top with the, with the Caesars and the kings and the governors, and they see their chance because here they are kind of uneducated uh, fishermen. They're, you know, they're working class, and here they see this opportunity. Now Jesus has come, given them a fresh start. He's the, he is God. He's the king. He is divine, and now he's going to take us with him up here. But who among us is the greatest? Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? We want to be up here at the top of the pyramid, and Jesus is saying, get down. Get back down here with her. Get back down here with me. This is where we live. We live at the bottom. We live with those who are bearing the weight of the rest. So he tells them to humble themselves, to serve the oppressed. And oppression can take lots of, of different forms. Uh, today, we're going to talk about oppression and marginalization in the context of race, A, because it's so prevalent in the headlines, and B, uh, because this has been something that's uh, been on the forefront of, of my mind, um, is, is uh, I'll be planting a multi-ethnic church south of Austin. So trying to kind of navigate these differences um, is something that I've been wrestling with very, very much. And I'll I will give it to you. I'm in the beginning stages of this, and I don't have it all figured out. I, I, I do know a few things, but I'm definitely still wrestling with this and seeking understanding. So that being said, uh, let me just post a little disclaimer on this message this morning. This is an awkward topic. Can we all agree with that? Yes, this is an awkward topic. This is an untouchable topic. But just, you know, for a few minutes at least, uh, I ask you to join, uh, to join my two-year-old son uh, in, his, in his attitude toward things. If, if it says, do not touch, you touch it, right? Just, just right for it, right for it. If it says, do not touch, that's the first thing you're going for. Because you've got to ask yourself, why? Why can't we touch this? Why is it so off limits? Why is it untouchable? Why is it so awkward? So let's just barrel through that and acknowledge that we can all be awkward together and embrace comfort in our discomfort this morning. It's not just you. This is going to be kind of like it's everybody. All right. Um, so we're, we're good. We're good. This is a safe place for that. Um, so um, that being said, I, I don't think in my experience, I'm sure I know it is sometimes, but in my experience, for the most part, racism is not intentional. Okay. It, it's, uh, it's not on purpose, it's not out of malicious intent most of the time for the average Joe. So why does it happen? Why is it, why is it there? Well, you look at the way that the, the system of our society is built, and when you have one group of people, one status, uh, relatively about the same age, the same um, sex, it's going to serve mostly one group of people. And in our situation, since our nation's inception, that group of people has been older white males, right? So the laws will gravitate more towards them. And, and again, like, I want to believe that this is not malicious intent. Maybe for some it was, and, and for some it still is. I don't know. But I want to believe, I want to put the best construction on it, give most of them the benefit of the doubt that this is not out of malicious intent, that it's done uh, naively and they, that they don't realize the extent of the impact of a lot of the decisions that have been made throughout time and all the people that those decisions have reached uh, and, and hurt, killed even at times. I 
personally, um, was not malicious in my understanding of race when, when I believed that affirmative action was reverse racism, right? I believed that if, if, if something benefits people of color and not white people, then we've fallen off the horse on the other side. That, that we are still seeking just like, we're, we're still catering to, to one group over the other. But that was because I had never met somebody who needed affirmative action to reach even a fraction of the progress that I was born into and had taken advantage of all my life, taken for granted. I'd never known anybody like that. And I was taught to believe as I was growing up, I think a lot of us were taught to believe that, that uh, after Martin Luther King came, after the civil rights movement had, end, had ended, uh, the equality won out, right? That, that we, the conversation had come to the fore, racism was, was gone, equality was good now. And then I remembered, oh yeah, that guy got shot. It's not done. It's just kind of submerged for a while and starting to resurface again. It's getting intense. If you do believe that racism is dead or if people are just being too politically correct or too sensitive or, or, or whatever, you know, I've, I've heard countless times, if, if, if you do believe that, at least take a moment to, to reflect on, on the amount of privilege that it takes to be able to actually believe that. The amount of privilege that a person must have to never experience the receiving end of someone else's marginalization or oppression. Every single year, the U.S. becomes more and more ethnically diverse. Uh, in 2014, Pew, the Pew Research Center did this study um, that of school-aged children, K through eight, 51% in public school were, uh, would be minorities, 51%. Meanwhile, in the same year they did a different study on different church denominations, they found that the LCMS, Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod, and if you don't know, that's our tribe, that's our uh, denomination, um, the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod is the third least diverse denomination, major denomination in the country. 95% white. So we have a culture that's growing more diverse. We have a church that's uh, growing maybe incrementally more diverse or staying relatively the same. Uh, in any case, it's not keeping up with cultural diversity. And I love our tribe. I love our theology. That's why I want to take this theology beyond ethnic boundaries because I do believe it is capable of withstanding uh, our differences. I do believe it's capable of withstanding all of those um, things that boundaries bring. It, it can break through that. It does break through that. But there is a clear disconnect between what's happening in society and what's happening in the church. And it's not just our denomination that this is happening in, by the way. The church is largely white. I'm, I'm sure you've heard the quote attributed to Martin Luther King Jr. is actually said post-Civil War uh, when, when, um, uh, when slavery was abolished. Uh, the churches weren't integrating after that. They, they were still looking very segregated. Uh, so it was said that the church is the most segregated hour in America, right? And that's still the truth today. So we need to em embrace this disconnect, or we need to embrace the reality of this disconnect and say, uh, the most common question that I've asked that reflects this disconnect, the most common question I've been asked is why, why plant a multi-ethnic church? Why can't you just plant a church 
that reaches all people? Why do you have to qualify as multi-ethnic? Why uh, are you so intentional about that? Isn't that reverse racism? Shouldn't it just happen organically? And to that I say, yes, it should. I hate qualifying a church plant as multi-ethnic when the kingdom of God by nature is multi-ethnic and the local church is not. I hate having to qualify that. And I, and I want to work with pastors, with congregations for a day when that's just the way it's done, is intentional, uh, intentionally reaching beyond those boundaries. So, but, but why, uh, why can't it happen organically? Why doesn't it happen organically? See, when, when we say, I'm not opposed to people of color coming into my church, I'm not going to turn them away because of their skin color. That, that's, obviously, that's great. But what are you doing to actively reach those people? You see, when, when, we, when we say, yeah, they're welcome here, all that does is put it on a group of people who, are all, who already have been pushed to the margins, who already feel distance. All it does is put it on them to say, whenever you're ready, you can come to us. And that is just not what Christ did. That's not what he did. He made himself uncomfortable. So, um, you know, the Black Lives Matter, Blue Lives Matter, All Lives Matter movement, I, I, my wife told me about a, a great meme where Jesus is sitting on uh, the mountain preaching the Beatitudes, and he says, blessed are the poor in spirit. And someone from bubble from the crowd says, blessed are all lives. Right? <laughs> it's, it's, not, it's not the same. Of, of course, of course, all lives matter. That's, that's not the point. The point is to intentionally acknowledge that all lives have not mattered historically, not equally. And it takes intentional work to bring us up to even if we can put it that way. This is the biblical church. A church the, this is the throne room of God in Revelation where all tribes and nations are gathered around God, and we just often don't see it. So uh, the, last, the last common pushback that, that, that I've received that I can think of is, why do you focus so much on race? So I'm, and by the way, I held this for a long time, I said, why, why focus so much on race? See, I'm colorblind. I, I don't see color. I just treat all people equally. Uh, Richard Alba, he's a sociology professor. He writes, we are becoming a more diverse society, but not a post-racial one. For that reason, we cannot abandon ethno-racial categories. They register legacies of slavery, conquest, and oppression that have enduring effects. They are still useful to measure and redress inequalities. They need to be acknowledged for the history and the baggage that they carry. There's only one way to move forward from here, and that is to encounter the awkwardness, engage it, and bridge that gap. That's exactly what Christ did. We weren't like him. We weren't divine. But he took on our flesh just so he could be pierced. And he took on our blood just so it could be spilled for us. He became one of us. He sought us out to restore us. And that's what the job of the church is. Those who have been clothed with Christ, those who have been united with him and bear his identity, now bear the weight of those who have a weight placed upon them. 
He, in, he intentionally came to restore us, even though it meant the cross. And, you know, there's a reason he has a heart for the oppressed, because that's exactly what he came to be. We saw in the reading, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. Whoever receives one of them receives me. And in Matthew 25, he says, I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? When did we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, truly, I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. He has bound himself inextricably with the least of these. So whether it's active oppression and intentionally pushing someone to the margins or passive oppression and naively saying, not my problem, you deal with it. It all falls on him, good or bad. It all falls on him because he has identified himself with the least. And frankly, we are all prone to oppression, even those who have been oppressed. See, oppression is not the problem. Racism, ageism, sexism, human trafficking, not the problem. The oppression, marginalization, is a manifestation of the real problem. Sin is the real problem. So the best way I've, I've heard it expressed to keep this in, in your mind, it's not about the color of your skin, it's about the wages of your sin. That's the problem. It's the wages of sin that brings death, and it's in us all, and it's against us all. Audre Lorde was a, uh, a civil rights activist back in the day. She said, the true focus of revolutionary change is never merely the oppressive situations that we seek to escape, but that piece of the oppressor which is planted deep within each of us. That's what Jesus' revolution was against. His revolution in humanity was to overthrow sin and death, and that takes some intensity. So if your discipleship is comfortable, um, I would submit that there's something very wrong in the way, in the way you're following Christ. I, I don't mean discomfort in like, well, I woke up here on a weekend and I got here. That's uncomfortable. I had to battle my kids to get them here. That's uncomfortable. I have to talk to somebody on Sunday morning that I have some beef with. That's uncomfortable. That's not the, the discomfort that I mean. Revolutionaries will experience deep discomfort for their cause because in a revolution, there is violence and there is bloodshed. There's intensity. But Christ came to receive the violence. He came to receive the bloodshed. It's all on him for the sake of us the oppressed, them the oppressed. It all falls on him. And it is now our privilege and our responsibility to bear his name when we lift that off somebody else. See, rebels aren't in no revolution, will you find rebels kind of just sitting together, patting each other on the back, waving these little plastic flags saying, yay, we're revolting. This is revolution. No, of course not. Revolution is intense. So we have to move beyond blaming politics and policies. And if only the government would place this, this, and this in place, then it would all be solved. See, that doesn't take 
relationship to restore. We have to move beyond Facebook posts that say, type amen and share if you agree. That's not revolution. We have to move beyond Jesus fishing. That's the extent of my witness in the world. That's not revolution. Revolution is uncomfortable. Revolution is intense. Christ called us beyond those things. See, in, in our reading today, notice that the best fate of anyone who separates God from his people is drowning. That's a very intense image, especially coming from uh, you know, the, the, the meek little shepherd that we often imagine Christ to be. Right after that, he says, whatever is causing uh, you to sin, whatever it is in your life that's separating you from God, cut it off. Even if it's as dear to you as an eye or a hand, get rid of it. What are you doing with your wealth, with your time, with your relationships? Are they drawing you closer to God or further away? If they're further away, then cut it off. Because we're in revolution. There's no room for spending time in enemy camp. He goes on to draw attention to just how vehemently God pursues those who have been separated from him. The reason our discipleship is so intense is because his love for us is so intense. So should ours be for those around us. The point is clear. Jesus has started a revolution against anything separating God from his people, and he intentionally draws the marginalized and oppressed to himself so that they may be restored, and so should we. A love that was so intense as to take Christ to the cross should also characterize our lives. Pursue the revolution of Christ. That is the revolution of all humanity. Father, when we come face to face with this reality, all kinds of things uh, can happen. We can become defensive. We can cower in guilt and shame. We can uh, just reject it out of hand. And I ask that just as you sent Christ to die for us, that you would also send him into our hearts. Restore us with your message of forgiveness. Send your Holy Spirit on us so that we can work powerfully in your kingdom for the lives of those who have been pushed to the margins. And Lord, as we focus so heavily on the oppressed and the marginalized this morning, let us take that deep into our hearts that we were once that way, cut off from you until you came and picked us up, restored us, so that we can then turn around and show that dimension to our neighbor, a God who restores, a God who comes to us. Thank you, Father, for all that you do in the person of your son, Jesus Christ, who died and rose for us, and in whose name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Acts Church in Leander, Texas. Feel free to share this message with others and stay connected with us at actschurchleander.com.